Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and co-creator of Patriot Week. This episode continues our detailed review of the Declaration of Independence. Over this podcast, we will be examining each sentence of the Declaration so that we can understand the foundation of our freedoms and liberties. If you missed our prior episodes, I recited the entire Declaration and reviewed the prefatory text. You might want to go back and listen to catch up to where we are, but if you don't care about the background or how we arrived at this sentence, feel free to jump on board with this episode right now. When we return, we will be reviewing the sentence that begins, quote, when in the course of human events, unquote. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. We are the most unique country in human history because we were the first to actually lay out in writing our origins, purpose, and underlining first principles in the Declaration of Independence. And unlike some other nations that have done the same thing since then, we actually take our Declaration seriously. The first full sentence of the Declaration is as follows, quote, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Unquote. Okay, let's start to break this down. The first word is when. You might be tempted to just skip over it, but not so fast. This is actually very important. Webster's 2 New Riverside University Dictionary defines when as, quote, at what time, unquote, and, quote, at which time, unquote, and perhaps more precisely for the Declaration, quote, at the time that, unquote. Why is this important? It is important because to understand the Declaration of Independence, you need to know that it arose from a specific time and place. It is not some worksheet exercise for the sake of philosophy, some pontifications just announced to the universal, or sentiments written down in the back room by some dead white guys divorced from reality. To the contrary, it is deeply embedded in the time and place from which it was created. That is not to say that it is not vitally important today. It is tremendously important today. I think the most important document in American history uh, and putting aside some religious texts, the most important document in human history. And to truly understand it, we need to understand the historical context from which it arises. The sentence continues, quote, When in the course of human events, unquote. The second clause in the course of human events also seems simple, but actually is complex and important. It reveals the underlying understanding of time and history by the Founding Fathers. For much of ancient history, and for some religions even today, the concept of time is cyclical. Some refer to it as a wheel of time. This idea of time is that events repeat. Mankind is born, matures, dies, and is reborn to do it all over again. Empires rise and fall, and then they're reborn and rise and fall again. The cosmos and times are circular, moving around and around like the hands of a clock. There isn't much progress for humanity. 
we just keep going around in circles, although the circles take thousands of years. Hinduism, Sikhism, Taoism, and Buddhism all have this kind of view, as did the ancient Aztecs and Mayans. Many Native Americans have this view as well. Modern Western conceptions of time, Western being European-based and originated concepts, or maybe the Near East, really Judeo-Christian concepts, think of time as going only in one direction, forward. I mean, barring H.G. Wells' time machines or Star Trek's time travel by slingshotting around the stars, uh, but I digress. This idea is literally and figuratively referred to in Jefferson's phrase, when in the course of human events. The course is a forward progress of time, like a river flowing in one direction. There is no circle or wheel here. The Founding Fathers are mostly children and believers of the Enlightenment, and Enlightenment thinkers believed in the idea of progress, that the human condition should improve over time with the application of reason and science. This idea that mankind can overcome poverty, rise above history, and improve his lot is fundamental to the Founders' worldview. After all, if one could not take control of his or her own destiny and forge a better path, the whole idea of a revolution seems relatively fruitless. This idea of forward progress is both individualized, that is, each person can improve his or her own condition, and societal, that is, our society as a whole can improve over time. The idea of history moving forward is one that Jews and Christians embraced. Christianity in particular believes at its core that there are certain historical events that will not repeat. For example, Christ was born only once. He was crucified at a particular time and place. In between, he preached to particular people at a particular time. Someday in the future, he will return to earth and fundamentally transform society. The Jews had the same general idea. The creation of the earth, Genesis, the ancient stories of the early Jewish people. Abraham was a real person, lived at a particular time. Eventually, his people go to Egypt and are enslaved. Moses leads them out of Egypt and dies before he can enter the promised land. Eventually, prophets come and talk about a Messiah. There is a current of history. It moves forward towards a better tomorrow. That this is our current view is undeniable. Look around today. Politicians are constantly making promises of a new and brighter future. Technological advances, scientific advances, medical advances, transportation advances, they're all expected today as a matter of course. We know that tomorrow is going to be better. This view has only come to ascendancy in the last few centuries and is core to our beliefs as Americans today as it was for the founders in 1776. So we have when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary. Notice the founders did not say when convenient or at our leisure or whenever we feel like it or when the planets Mars and Jupiter are in conjunction on the equinox, which really is going to happen on March 20th, 2020, equinox. Uh, don't ask me what that means. This is a topic for somebody else's podcast. I haven't studied astronomy since I was an undergrad at Wayne State University. Go Warriors! Wait, 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 wait. I, I'm, I'm digressing again. The point is that the founders said that they would act when it was necessary. The act of declaring revolution was not taken up casually. They had to do it. It was required. There was no other choice. They were forced into a corner. They could not retreat or otherwise remedy the situation. We will see later that they thought it was essential to preserving their life, liberty, and sacred honor. It was necessary. An article by Stephen E. Lucas, 
published by the National Archives, gives some gloss to the term necessary. Lucas explained that necessary, quote, in the 18th century carried strongly deterministic overtones. To say an act was necessary implied that it was impelled by fate or determined by the operation of inextricable natural laws and was beyond the control of human agents. Thus, Chamber Cyclopedia defined necessary as that which cannot but be or cannot be otherwise. The common notion of necessity and impossibility, Jonathan Edwards wrote in Freedom of the Will, implies something that frustrates endeavor or desire. That is necessary in the original and proper sense of the word, which is or will be, notwithstanding all supposable opposition. Characterizing the revolution as necessary suggested that it resulted from constraints that operated with law-like force throughout the material universe and within the sphere of human action. The revolution was not merely preferable, defensible, or justifiable. It was inescapable, as inevitable, as unavoidable within the course of human events as the motions of the tides or the changing of the seasons within the course of natural events. Unquote. An internal quotation marks omitted. In fact, at the time, what we would have called international law required that countries not go to war unless it was necessary. That means that all recourse to other options had failed. The founders were well aware of this and invoked British understandings of necessity to justify their revolution. Lucas continues, quote, Investing the revolution with connotations of necessity was particularly important because, according to the law of nations, recourse to war was lawful only when it became necessary, only when an amicable negotiation had failed and other alternatives for settling the differences between the two states had been exhausted. Nor was the burden of necessity limited to monarchs and established nations. At the start of the English War in 1642, Parliament defended its recourse to military action against Charles I in a lengthy declaration demonstrating the necessity to take up arms. Following this tradition, in July 1775, the Continental Congress issued its own declaration, setting forth the causes and necessity of their taking up arms. When a year later, Congress decided the colonies could no longer retain their liberty within the British Empire, it adhered to a long-established rhetorical convention by describing independence as a matter of absolute and inescapable necessity. Unquote. Again, internal quotation marks omitted. Back to the Declaration. It states, quote, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Unquote. Now this is an interesting proposition. Up until the revolution, the colonists were the subjects of the British Empire. There were 13 separate colonies, each with their own population, tradition, customs, and laws, and they had their own governors and legislatures. Some colonists were fresh off the boat, so to speak, but others' families lived in the colonies for generations. But as subjects of the British Empire, they were all Englishmen. Forgive the gender bias here, that is the term that was used. As Englishmen, they had a common bond of allegiance to the King and Parliament, and they had all of the rights, privileges, and immunities of Englishmen. They had a shared culture and worldview. They were deeply steeped in the religious and historical traditions of England. It is true that colonization originated from other countries, such as Spain, Holland, and France, and that sprinkled, or perhaps uh, more accurately clumped throughout the colonies, were colonists from non-English countries. But by the time of the Revolution, the English dominated the 13 colonies. But this was not a cohesive whole. Some colonists, like the Irish, absolutely detested England. 
Others, like the Quakers and Puritans, had fled England to escape religious persecution and to establish a new city on a hill, as John Winthrop put it. Still, the idea that the colonists were a, quote, people, unquote, separate from the English Empire, would have been almost certainly rejected by the political class and most colonists before 1760. But over time, as the British became oppressive and colonists stood up for their rights, the German idea that the colonists were Americans started to germinate. But even when the fighting really started in 1775, most colonists considered themselves to be English. They were fighting for the rights of Englishmen, nothing more and nothing less. The fighting was a family squabble, or an insurrection, or maybe a civil war. It was not a war of independence. Others, however, had a different view. As noted in our prior episodes, Thomas Jefferson was unable to attend the First Continental Congress. So he wrote a pamphlet for the congressman entitled A Summary View of the Rights of British America. In 1774, this remarkable work started to lay the framework for showing that the colonists deserved to be independent and were a different people. Have a listen. Quote, America was conquered and her settlements made and firmly established at the expense of individuals and not of the British public. Their own blood was split in acquiring lands for the settlement. Their own fortunes expended in making that settlement effectual. For themselves they fought, for themselves they conquered, and for themselves alone they have a right to hold. Not a shilling was ever issued from the public treasures of His Majesty or his ancestors for their assistance to a very late times after the colonies had become established on a firm and permanent footing." Unquote. This kind of sentiment arises again and again in the leaders of the resistance to British tyranny. Benjamin Franklin wrote that the colonies, quote, were acquired, purchased, or conquered at the sole expense of the settlers or their ancestors without the aid of the mother country, unquote. Jefferson gave a preview of the argument of why separation was necessary in a summary view. Quote, Can any one reason be assigned by 160,000 electors in the island of Great Britain should give law to 4 million in the states of America? Every individual who is equal to every individual of them in virtue, in understanding, and in bodily strength. Were this to be admitted, instead of being a free people, as we have hitherto supposed and mean to continue, we should be suddenly found the slaves, not of one, but of 160,000 tyrants, distinguished two from all others by this singular circumstance that they are removed from the reach of fear, the only restraining motive that may hold the hand of a tyrant. Unquote. By July 4th, 1776, the preview had become fact. The founding generation saw themselves as a new people. Leave it to a foreigner, J. Hector St. John de Creveton, in his letters for the American farmer, and forgive me for massacring that name, to summarize the state of affairs. Quote, in this American asylum, the poor of Europe have by some means met together, and in the consequence of various causes. To what purpose should they ask one another what countrymen they are? Alas, two-thirds of them had no country. Can a wretch who wanders about, who works and starves, whose life is a continual scene of sore affliction or pinching penury, can that man call England or any other kingdom his country? 
A country that had no bread for him, whose fields procured him no harvest, who met with nothing but the frowns of the rich, the severities of the law, with jails and punishments, who owned not a single foot of the extensive service of this planet? No. Urged by a variety of motives, here they came. Everything has tended to regenerate them. New laws, a new mode of living, a new social system. Here, they are become men. In Europe, there were so many useless plants, wanting vegetative mold and refreshing showers. They withered and were mowed down by want, hunger, and war. But now, by the power of transplantation, like all other plants, they have taken root and flourished. Formerly, they were not numbered in any civil list of their country, except in those of the poor. Here, they rank as citizens. Here, individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. Unquote. I just have to say, what a beautiful passage. The artistry of the words is masterful. I understand it ignores the dark, unfathomable torture of the enslaved who are not treated as citizens. And we will get to that soon enough. But it is still a majestic statement. But let's digest what transfiguration the colonist had undergone. They purposely chose to come here. The trip was dangerous. Many died. They struggled under very taxing circumstances. The struggle built up their character. They were not servile or weak like those that were left behind in Europe, but strong and vibrant, robust and filled with verve, independent in spirit and strongly opinionated. They had become a new people, an American people. So let's return to the text. Quote, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Unquote. So we have, quote, when, unquote, which was the historical setting it was written, and quote, in the course of human events, unquote, which was placing it in the context of forward progress over time, and quote, it becomes necessary, unquote, that is absolutely required, and quote, for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, unquote. And here we have learned that the colonists had become a new people, unlike any other on earth. So what does, quote, dissolve the political bands, unquote, mean? Dissolve is a relatively straightforward concept. The people of the colonies needed to sever, cut, and break the bands that connected them to the king and parliament. They needed to rid themselves of those bands. And what is a, quote, band, unquote? Again, a relatively simple term. These are connections, links, bonds, something that ties one thing to another. What kind of bands is the next question. They are, quote, political, unquote, bands. Dictionary.com has a few definitions of political. The most pertinent are, quote, of relating to or concerned with politics. Exercising or seeking power in the governmental or public affairs of a state, municipality, etc. Of relating to or involving the state or its government. A political community of or relating to citizens, unquote. So we're not talking about cultural or economic bands or military bands. Some of these have already been severed. During the years leading to the declaration, the colonies had banded together to protest English taxes, regulations, and other oppressions by refusing to purchase imported British goods. Those boycotts came and went over time and varied in scope and breadth, depending on the circumstances and the policies the colonists were protesting at the time. The economic ties refrain. We have already addressed how the colonists had become their own people, similar but materially different than the English. 
The British regular forces and their hired guns from other countries such as Germany were a freestanding military force. The colonial militias and other forces were originally designed to operate under the control of the British military direction, but that had ceased to exist. No, the issue at hand in July 1776 was political bands. Who governed? Who was the sovereign? Who controlled the government? How the nation was organized and managed? Those connections, which had been between king and parliament on one side and the colonies and colonists on the other, that is what was being rendered asunder. In other parlance, prior to the revolution, there was a social compact between the subjects of the British Empire and the colonists were part of that social compact. The Declaration revokes and ceases that compact between the people in the colonies and the rest of the empire. We will discuss the idea of a social compact in much more greater detail in future episodes. The Declaration continues, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. This phrase explains what is happening with the colonies once they have dissolved the political bands. They're not going to join some other empire, like the French or Spanish. They're not going to dissolve into anarchy. The colonies are not going to cease to exist. No, the colonies were going to become free and independent states. The, quote, powers of the earth, unquote, are nations. The colonies are going to assume, quote, the separate and equal station, unquote. In other words, they're going to become new nations. The phrase, quote, the laws of nature, nature's God entitled them, unquote. Now that is a key and deep concept. A concept so deep and important that I'm not going to cram it into this episode because it deserves its own serious time. So we have some key takeaways from this episode. We understand the founders were addressing a specific time and historical context. That they viewed time as linear, that is moving in one direction and in a progressive or improving direction. That Americans were one people that were now different than the English. The founders ended the political bands with the British Empire. The colonies were going to be free and independent nations. You know what? We're not even through with the first full sentence. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at the beginning of the greatest document forged by human hands. Join me next episode as we explore the remainder of the first full sentence of the Declaration of Independence. That is, quote, the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation, unquote. You're going to be in for a real treat. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. To learn more about our Declaration of Independence, Constitution, American History and Civics, please subscribe to our podcast. Also visit PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. We are now nationwide, recently been recognized by the United States Senate in a unanimous resolution, and we really can use your help. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook on our group page, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If, again, if you're interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments about this podcast or Patriot Week in general, please send us a message on the social media platforms I've mentioned or connect with me directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. That's M-W-A-R-R-E-N 
at patriotweek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.